The gospel for this Trinity Sunday comes from the gospel according to John, chapter 3, verses 1 through 17, and it's on page 751 of the Pew Bible. And please stand for the gospel. From John 3, beginning at verse 1, we read in Jesus' name. Now there is a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not, where it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit." Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Father, these are your words. Sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Amen. You may be seated. Dear June, you have been baptized into the Lord Jesus Christ, and thus you have been born from above by water and the Spirit. The Holy Spirit has given birth to your new Spirit, and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ has become your Father, and he loves you. And dear Kyle, Nathaniel, Jaden, and Grace, you also have been born from above by water and the Spirit. Thus far, the Holy Spirit has preserved you in this baptismal faith. And now you are about to make a public confession that you believe in the triune God. This is the faith that was born in your baptism. And thus far, the Holy Spirit has preserved you in this baptismal faith. And we pray that he will continue to preserve you in this baptismal faith until the end. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. At first glance, this 
seems like a marvelous verse that proclaims to us the extent of God's love for the world. It is usually the first verse that children memorize. And at first glance, it seems like a marvelous verse. But as we stop and consider it and meditate on what it actually says, it's even better than it first appears. John 3.16 teaches us that God loved us. But of course, it says much more than that. It tells us how God loved us. And that is the marvelous part. I want you to uh, imagine with me a father. And uh, suppose this father has children. Well, I guess that's obvious. That's essential to being a father. And this father, he tells his children every day that he loves them. When they do something that pleases him, he says, I love you. And when they do something that displeases him, he still says, I love you. Every day he finds at least one opportunity to say, I love you. Most days he says it several times. But what if that is as far as his love goes? Suppose when the father gets up in the morning, he has breakfast, gets ready for his day, and leaves for work. The children get themselves ready. They find their own breakfast, or sometimes going hungry or digging in the trash if they run out of cereal. And they get to school on their own. If they miss the bus, they have to walk. And this is pretty much how their lives go. The father does very little, if anything, to take care of them. They learn, I guess, as best as they can to take care of themselves. So they are often hungry and the only possessions they have were either found in someone's trash or given to them by someone other than their father. But the father is very proud of them. When he sees how they take care of themselves and look out for each other, he is filled with pride. And he has deep emotional feelings for them. He adores them. Whenever he looks at them, his heart wells up within him. And so he says to them, Often, I love you. But what if that is as far as his love goes? Eventually, his children are going to ask, does our father really love us? I mean, sure, he may be proud of us and he might have warm feelings in his heart for us, but love has to be more than a feeling. Doesn't love have to do something? And indeed, love is more than a feeling. In truth, it might not even be quite right to say that love is more than a feeling because love, at least in the biblical sense of the word, is not a feeling at all. Love is an action. And we learn this in John 3.16. For God so loved the world. And I want you to notice the grammar here. You might be thinking, oh boy, here he goes, getting all grammatical and nerdy again. Yeah, I suppose. But grammar is important because God reveals himself to us in words. If we, if we desire to understand who God is and what he has done for us, we must understand his words to us. For that is how he chose to reveal himself. And so I want you to notice the grammar. For God so loved the word, the world. This little word so, 
Sometimes it can refer to the extent of something, or other times it refers to the manner of something. That is, what I mean is, it could refer either to how much God loved the world, or in what way God loved the world. Does it mean God loved the world so much as if God thought we were such cute little sinners that he couldn't contain his feelings any longer and said, oh, all right, since I just love them so much, I guess I'll give them my son. Or does it mean in this manner God loved the world? Meaning that giving us his son is the way in which he loved us. The second option is the right one. John 3.16 talks about the manner, the way in which God loved the world. And notice also that the word loved is in the past tense. It's talking about what God did. If we were talking about God's feelings, it would be kind of strange to talk about those feelings in the past tense, as if God's warm and fuzzy feelings for us had passed. To be sure, God does have feelings of emotion for us. But these feelings are better expressed by by the biblical word compassion. The biblical word love refers specifically to God's actions. And that is why it is in the past tense. For in this manner, God loved the world. And this refers back to what Jesus says in verse 14. This is where we see exactly how God loved the world. And Jesus, he talks about this rather obscure story from the Old Testament about a snake on a pole. He says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Jesus must be lifted up on a pole like a snake. This is the manner in which God loved us. When the Israelites, when they were dwelling in the wilderness, you know, those 40 years between when they left Egypt and when God brought them into the land he had promised them, toward the end of those 40 years, there was an instance where the people became impatient and they sinned against the Lord. For almost 40 years at this point, God had taken care of all their needs. Food, water, clothing, shelter, whatever they needed. But the people, they were a lot like you and me. And they doubted. And so they grumbled against the Lord. One of the first things we study in confirmation class is the first commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And this means, we learn, that we should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. You and I, we we break this commandment in many different ways. Whatever we fear, or whatever we fear losing, that is our God. Whatever we love above all things, that is our God. And whatever we trust in, that is our God. So we make for ourselves all sorts of different gods. Most of them are not carved images. Typically, it is whatever our hearts desire. Whatever we think will fulfill our deepest or shallowest desires. We turn these things into our gods and so break the first commandment. 
If you want to find out what false gods you are worshiping, just ask yourself these three questions. What do I fear? What do I love? And what do I trust in? How you answer those questions reveals who or what your God is. And typically, when we are honest with ourselves, the answer will end up being anything but the one true God. And then without going into all the details, this was true of the Israelites in the wilderness. So God sent a curse of snakes upon them. The Bible refers to them as fiery serpents who bit the people, and many of the Israelites died. So the people confessed their sin and asked for mercy. And God heard their prayer. He had mercy on them. But he did not take the snakes away. Instead, he told Moses to do something rather strange. He told Moses to make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. You've probably seen pictures of a snake wrapped around a pole when you go to the hospital or when maybe when you get mail from your insurance company. This obscure Old Testament story is where that symbol comes from. But it seems kind of odd, right? Make a bronze image depicting this curse. And if you are bitten by one of these cursed snakes, just look at the image of the curse and you will live. This is a strange prescription for snake bite. If your doctor ever tells you to do this, seek a second opinion. But God said it would work, and it did. This prescription might not make a lot of sense. God could have used any means he wanted to save his people. Why would he choose a snake wrapped around a pole? This hideous or grotesque, ugly image of a snake on a pole, it is a picture of God's Son of all things. The snake on a pole was a foreshadowing of what God would do by giving us his Son. It is a picture of how God loved the world. For God so loved the world. God gave his only son to us for one purpose, to become a curse for us. To become the curse of sin and death for us. To bear the curse that we rightly deserved for following after our other gods. Jesus became that curse as he was lifted up on a pole. So that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. Of all the different images we could have of Jesus Christ, the image of a snake might be the last one that we expect. Right? When you think of a snake, you think of the Garden of Eden. And in the garden, the devil comes along as a serpent, as a snake. What biblical imagery could possibly be more evil than a serpent? The image of a serpent is the ultimate picture of the curse of sin and death. And that is precisely why the serpent, 
is such a perfect picture for the Son of God. Because that is what he became. That is the manner in which God loved the world. He gave his only Son to be a curse. He became sin and death for us. To bear the wrath that you and I deserved. To be lifted up on a pole, a cross, not as something beautiful and attractive, but as a snake, as a worm of a man. So that whoever looks on this hideous and cursed sight and believes that this is how God loved the world, whoever does that will be saved. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son to become a snake on a pole that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Amen. In the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.